Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? A fantasy book club hosted by me, Geordie Bailey. And by me, his ineffably good co-host, Duncan Nickel. Ineffably, Duncan. Ineffably. Oh, did I say it wrong? <laughs> no, I'm not... Sorry, Duncan, I'm not saying uh, that you mispronounced it. I, I'm not being rude to you. Although, I, it, it, no, wait, I, I am saying it. It's ineffable. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> I was saying that that's a line from the book, Duncan. It's a line from the book. It is a line from the book. And such a good book it is this week, Georgie. It is a good book. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I'm glad that Terry didn't let me down. Terry never lets us down. He's a fantastic author all round. Maybe even one of my favourites. I'm, I'm throwing a teeny bit at the Terry's never let me down. Because I, 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 I think I have been let down by, by Sir Terry. You know, um, okay, Raising Steam doesn't count. Oh, I, I, I own Raising Steam, but I've not read it. I was thinking of, um, you know, The Color of Magic. Oh. Okay. This has gone off a dark. We we see people, we think about the star of these episodes. We think of the joyful, upbeat way we're going to get into the book. And Georgie's just now completely hit me in the back of the head. Complete surprise. <laughs> and it's dissing Color of Magic. Uh, yeah. Not part of, of our plan. Of course I am. It's, it's nowhere near his best work. I'm so glad yeah. we're finally having an argument. We're five episodes in, we finally have a disagreement. Okay, first thing. The book we're talking about today, if you did not read the title to this podcast, is mm. Good Omens. Yep. And secondly, if you're in the car, it's on autoplay. Colour of Magic, with Terry Fetchett's first Discworld book. Indeed. And it is possibly one of the worst, but I still wouldn't consider it a letdown. It does a wonderful job of really diving into the parody aspect of the fancy genre even if it maybe prioritizes that over characterization and the overall plot of the book. sure because I, I don't words. care too much about two flower and rinse rinse wind as characters no exactly and mm-hmm. interesting comparison because that's actually something that i thought would happen when i read good omens okay because when i first picked up good omens yeah background people i read good omens mm, 14 years ago i think i was mm. about 12 years old and I honestly picked up thinking, ah, oh, this is an Omens parody. And it becomes so much more. This is a book that really does set beyond that parody premise. When you say Omens, you mean like, um, the Omen, like the movie but... with, yeah, the movie with 666 and all that. Yeah. Uh, the Which movie it kind starring, of is, right? Um, is it Gregory, it's a Gregory Peck, isn't it? I don't know. I've never seen it. It is, but that's like that's the seed. That is the seed of this book. Mm-hmm. To be honest, though, but the meat, the structure, the bone, like it grows. Oh, I'm not gonna lie. I was, I was trying. I was, I was trying to do this like seed metaphor, <laughs> and then I was like, wait, am I doing like a human growing or like a plant growing? Um, yeah. Duncan you know, went the to the Deer of Hansen school of metaphors. Are people trees? <laughs> Are trees people? We'll never know. But yeah, it goes like the the trunk of this is completely different. Like. Yeah, there's a beautiful relationship in here. The 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 blossom coming off of mm. is the comedy. It's I didn't plan this metaphor ahead of time. I really should have. It's a really from from the roots of the omen comes the mighty trunk and the broad branches of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's collaboration. Before we crack exactly. on with a book, before we crack on. Um, we've had a little gap in between recording sessions. You know, we, we did our first batch of episodes to sort of get the lay of the land. Anyone who is listening through can say, whoa, 
big difference in audio quality between episode one and four. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we were, we're finding our feet and we're learning, and now I think we're really happy with our audio setups. Um, so we had a little gap whilst, Duncan, you were at a wedding, right? Oh, yes. Visiting the lovely county of Cornwall. Mm. One more time. I see. Cornwall. A place which I fear to go. Um, but whilst you're down there, you you told me you've read some other books, but you haven't told me what they are. Yeah, so I took a week's holiday, and some of you may know, part of this podcast was to help me kind of, like, pace myself. You know, That's right. Book a fortnight. That's normal. Mm. That's human. Uh, but when I went on holiday, I stayed in like a little fell off a wagon, a little beachside, yeah, a little bit. I stayed in like a beachside cabin, and I basically took a stack, a nice beefy stack with me, and I spent my entire holiday uh, sat on a beach and in this cabin, just plowing through book after book. And yeah, <laughs> I got through six novels in that week. Six novels in one week. Oh, Duncan, what are we gonna sure. do with you? It was it was a good week. Oh I'm well, lie. I'm very glad like, you had a good week, Dunk. I honestly, it was one of those times. I was like, and to be honest, Good Homes was such a good intro. I love mm-hmm. reading books on holiday because it allows you to really let them kind of like take you away because you don't mm-hmm. have those life stresses. You're not catching moments to read a few pages, which I often do between work or my lunch break. You can really just sit down, like get inverted in the book. And mm. when I read Good Omens, because Good Omens really highlighted to me, partly because I was on holiday in sunny Cornwall. For those mm-hmm. who don't know, Cornwall is one of the southernmost counties of England. Mm. It is like the sunniest, beachiest part of our country. Is it? That's that. I would say so. I'm not saying it's right. particularly sunny or beachy. I'm yeah, just saying it's the sunniest, beachiest. That's what I'm saying. The surfers like it. Yeah, it's nice. You get the nice Atlantic, the Atlantic waves come in. Mm. That cold, <laughs> sunny days, cold wind. Yeah. Um, but cream teas. So, mm-hmm. you had a cream tea, Geordie? Uh, cream tea? No. Yeah. No. What? No. No. What? All right, guys. There's only two types of tea which I like. I'm not a big tea guy. The types of tea I like are iced tea and bubble tea. I'm having to reappraise our friendship here. Sorry. This you... is um. This is this is very on on brand for good omens. A, a conversation about tea. But what I really want to know is, Duncan, what yeah. books did you read? Oh, of course. So obviously, besides <laughs> good omens, I cracked through uh the. Third chronological, sixth released Narnia book, I think, A Horse and His Boy. Mm, um, mm. I very recently started, I only when I was a kid, I only ever read the first chronological book, Magician's Nephew. And very mm. recently, particularly doing this podcast, because they're very short books, I thought, I know, I'll fit them in alongside. So I've been Right, because you've Narnia. never read um, The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, right? Never. Uh, well, I have now, uh, but... Exactly, okay. like two months ago, I'd never read it. I'd never read any more of the series apart from mm. The Last Battle. I'd read Magician's Nephew what? and Last Battle. Why would you read The Last Battle? <laughs> and nothing in between. That's so the two that... I was given as a kid. I don't know what happened, but I had it... a copy of Magician's Nephew and then like, I found a copy of Last Battle. <laughs> I, listen, I, um, I, look, I've never read The Last Battle. Uh, I've read the Wikipedia synopsis for it and it sounds completely balmy. So I cannot imagine, like, going to and being like, what's a Pevensey child? Who's Aslan? Stuff like that. Um, but whatever. So you read three Narnia books on your on your holiday? Oh, no. Oh, no. I read, so, Horse and His Boy, Good Omens, yep. Uh, yep. Nicholas Eanes' Bloody Rose, which was a fantastic fantasy book. 
Um, I'm sure we'll visit that author together sometime. Okay. Um, and then I read, because I'm on holiday and I want to switch off and I want to just some wonderful, I want to see the flashy lights. So I cracked out three uh, Star Wars Expanded Universe books uh, mm-hmm. sat in that cabin. Cool. Real cool. Yeah. Don't. It is an underappreciated. Um, I don't even know. I'm going to call it a franchise. It's not an underappreciated franchise. It's an, the, the books are good. Okay, guys. Um, okay. I also read through the the X Wing books, uh, uh, Bloodlines, which is one that focuses on like Princess Leia and like her political life. Uh, oh, I also read actually the... know what that book's about. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to a podcast years ago called the Star Wars Podcast by uh, the Star Wars Book Club by Jesse Cox, and that was one of the books they covered. <laughs> it was a good book. Um, and then, then I read the Rise of Skywalker novelization because. Oh, now that is interesting. I gotta... No, we have... Look, we've spent so much time at the start of this episode. We'll find another time to talk about the Rise of Skywalker novelization because I have to know what is going on there. Um, But we're not talking about novelizations today. We're talking about books, Duncan. Real books. Um, Real literature. Real literature. And we're talking about Terry Pratchett, uh, a, a deeply beloved fancy author um who had a huge impact on my life and my tastes what's good omens about duncan good omens as mentioned earlier begins with a parody take on the omen it is about the mm-hmm. antichrist this is about mm-hmm. the end of days and an angel and a demon that decide that they don't want the world to end yet they quite like it and their efforts in conjunction with some other a cast of colourful characters, including witchfinders, witches, and a young boy, um, and their efforts to postpone the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And it's really touching and really, really funny. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's um, it, it has a real uh, excellent sense of humour to it. Uh, I don't think it's my quite my favourite Terry Pratchett ever, but um, but he really uh, it's it's just incredible to see how he takes one idea and just adds his own inimitable his inimitable uh writing style to it you can tell at a glance if you open up any page this is written by terry pratchett i think you're missing out a little bit on neil gaiman's influence there because i know terry pratchett because i think i'm right in saying we're both bigger fans of terry pratchett's work than we are of neil i'm a pretty work. big neil gaiman well, fan can I say that? uh american gods is one of my favorite books interesting i've actually only read um, one other Neil Gaiman book, um, and that was Stardust, mm. which I love, but I've not jumped into a lot of his mm. works. So I am preaching this very much as a Terry Pratchett like fan. Stardust. And because of that, I don't know if that then means that I didn't notice Neil Gaimanisms yeah. as much as I noticed Terry Pratchettisms. Because Terry Pratchett, his style, particularly in his comedy and his asides, I love his asides and you, they have them in this book. These are bits where there's like you're reading the mm-hmm. main text, and there's just a little note, a marker, and then at the bottom footnote. of the page there will be like an expanded, yeah, footnote explanation, which it's there for yeah. a joke, pretty much a hundred percent of the time. It's like an extra joke that couldn't fit in the mm-hmm. main text. It's things like um, someone will briefly mention like a, a fictional historical figure, and then the footnote will say actually this historical figure was known for a great many other things, and then it will list a bunch of jokes. 
things that this person done which are funny. It's an interesting technique. Have you have you ever had another author do that? Yeah, I have had another author do that. Um, uh, for one thing, it's very important to the Flashman novels, which I can't recommend uh, because they're a pastiche of um, of Victorian adventure novels, which I read when I was um, a very young teenager. Um, they're super racist and sexist, like in a way that's supposed to be parody but isn't. Like it's just buying in wholesale to the good old days of racism. He doesn't use footnotes, but it's a very similar style to Douglas Adams in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, where the guide will go on asides about, um, about you know, the world and the galaxy and the strange things in it for the sake of humour. And Owen Colfer, who wrote the Artemis Fowl series, and also, as Duncan surely knows, the last book in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, and another thing, he took a much more inspired by Terry Pratchett approach and he literally wrote the guide notes as footnotes so I think he I, and I'm pretty sure Owen Coffer is almost certainly very inspired by Terry Pratchett I wouldn't disagree with you there uh, on that Owen Coffer point I also mm-hmm. find it interesting you know, Douglas Adams because I've always when I've like tried to sell uh, say a sci-fi fan to a fantasy fan yeah. or vice versa I always go right here's some rough comparisons like you know Terry Pratchett it's the fantasy Douglas Adams mm. it's the parody it's a bit of a certism um, and that's his main kind of bread and butter. Yeah. What I do quite like about Good Omens is if that's something that's often maybe puts you off, that really absurdish humour, Good Omens, it is there. But it's maybe a few notched down than Agreed. his normal uh, Discworld work. Mm-hmm. But I think what he then replaces that with... Sorry, I do... I must apologise because we are, I keep referring to it as he, Tay Pratchett. I know it's a joint uh, book but I may just say he. No, I no, Duncan, I, I was going to jump in and say this earlier, but I don't feel the Neil Gaimanism. I don't know what role he had in this. Like, norm, I, I would have felt like... I've read other collaborations of Terry Pratchett. His Long Earth series, he wrote with Stephen Baxter. And I can tell when Sir Terry was writing something, or when it was his idea, and when it was Stephen Baxter's idea. I could just tell. Um... Oh. I, I have can't do that in this, this one. I have actually researched that point a little bit. And um, from my research, apparently the Neil Gaimanism, the core of the idea was originally from Neil Gaiman. He was the original I've... guy who went, this is the pitch. And yep. he put it I, out there. I, that, that is exactly what I assumed it would be. That Neil Gaiman was the ideas guy and then Terry Pratchett brought it to life. I feel like we're dissing on Neil Gaiman. He's a great author. absolutely he's a great author and it's a great idea like um and it's not surprising to me that it would be neil gaiman writing a story about you know uh demons and angels finding an allegiance to prevent the end of the world that's very neil gaiman but the execution is then what makes this book terry pratchett i agree let's talk about the execution this book, um, you know, it's, it's, it's comedic and it's about the end of the world. And in many respects, that actually makes uh, talking about this book a little bit more challenging because coming into mm-hmm. this, I was thinking, normally when I plan out, you know, how to talk about a book, I look to quotes. But all of these moments, I'm like, I can't say this quote in a podcast because every good quote is a good joke. And every good joke, yeah. once taken out of context and just if I just say it on the podcast would be diminished. Mm-hmm. So I am left just going, it's very good. It's that type of mm-hmm. humour. Like, I hope you enjoy this certain type of quirkiness. 
but I couldn't say I couldn't describe a particular example to, on this podcast without them diminishing yeah. the work. Duncan has a um has said before that um whilst we're looking forward to exploring the future graphic novels as well as novels in um in this podcast, he's worried that he doesn't have the artistic language to describe what makes art great. Um, and just so, I don't feel like I can describe comedy. Um, that's not a skill set I have. And analyzing comedy and being funny are really, really different skills. Um, the funniest, the, the best comedy critics in the world are the least funny people you'll ever meet. They'll never laugh at a joke, but it can tell you exactly why it is funny and why something is funnier than something else. And I can't do that. Mostly the same. Like, I can just mm-hmm. look, hold it up. I can hold up Good Omens and go, right, it's a bit like this, a bit like this, a bit like this, but it's better. Please read it. <laughs> something we should hang on to, and which you've begun to focus on, is that it is such, such a quintessentially British story. Um, everything about it feels like uh, Terry Pratchett, in the same way that Elric of Melnibone, we said, is probably... Uh, playing off the idea of the British Empire, I think Terry Pratchett is basically doing the same thing. Like, he he holds a mirror up to to the conventions of British society around things like, both things like uh, our cultural habits. There's plenty of times when, there's a, there's a scene in it where someone is possessed by a spirit, uh, chases people out of the house, and then sits down and makes herself and the spirit a cup of tea. As all good people should. Very rude uh, not to, Geordie. Uh, yeah. Mm. Have a cup of tea with me right now. <laughs> I, I won't. Slurp it out of the camera. I'm going to continue my mango, passion fruit and apple smoothie. Clippers. <sighs> the best British tea. Okay. Sponsor us. I don't think there's a real point in breaking down uh, the actual process of what goes on on which day. I don't think that's the most engaging thing we can talk about. But it has that structure, which is quite unpractical. Yes, so it, it takes place over the course of a week, basically. It begins 11 years in the past with the birth of the Antichrist. And then on his 11th birthday, the story kicks off. Um, and it becomes a day-by-day adventure where um, as each day passes, the stakes rise, the end of the world comes closer... Adam, the um, the Antichrist, who doesn't realise he's the Antichrist, comes more into his powers, and strange things begin to occur. But the crux of the humour of the story, the, the inciting incident, is that demons come up from hell with a baby, and they hand it to Crawley, um, a demon who lives on Earth. He, um, he doesn't go down to hell, his job is to stay on Earth, you know, cause people to commit sins and stuff, and keep an eye on things generally. Um, and he's told, we're going to give this, and it, as a reference to the omen, we're going to give this baby and swap it with the baby of, like, an American diplomat. But, there's a switcheroo. By, by a, through the intervention of humorous nuns, um, the, the baby is swapped by accident. It goes to just some guy's family, and the, and this child is raised as um uh, as a normal boy. I just want to add on to that. It's not just some guys, because what they do, it goes to 
some guy who just lives in that quintessential sleepy yep. British village outside Oxford. Mm-hmm. And it's that complete... It's not just that. It is specifically that mundane guy. That boring mm-hmm. old... I'm going to say... Baby, I'm going to say baby boomer kind of generation. So sort of grew up from the 40s and 50s and 60s. Yeah, this dude would have been born during World War Two. He smokes a pipe. He smokes a pipe. I love that detail. He's not particularly a good person. I think I quite like that. They don't go, oh, it's the average, you know, the average Brit is just such a, not Brit, the average person is just, you know, inherently good. He's just mm-hmm. neutral. He is true neutral. <laughs> and that's what makes it special. So um, to give you uh, a clearer image of this guy, in the BBC radio adaptation, uh, they had him played by Arthur Dent. Arthur Dent's voice actor from the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. I'm afraid I don't remember this actor's name. I've learned it many times. Simon Jones. He's such a fantastic actor. He um he just has this wonderful um ah, yes everything is straightforward and incredibly British, and it's still the 1970s voice and um a really smart choice of casting because it immediately lets you know if you're listening to the radio version. Um, you know, what this guy's deal is and why um, Adam is going to be brought up the way he is. He also has this um, this excellent um, lack of observation from which um, a lot of the early parts of the humour come from. And now I'm going to mention the radio version because um, when I first got Good Omens, I, um, I, I bought it on Audible using my Audible credits and I was like, okay, I'm going to go out and listen to this. I downloaded it. I went to take my dog for a walk. I put in my headphones. I started listening. And it wasn't Good Omens. It was the Good Omens radio adaptation. An, an, an abridged, full-cast version. It wasn't the book. And I went, oh, shoot. <laughs> well, I'm on my walk, so I can't download the actual book until I'm back. So I'll just listen to the radio version. And so for the first hour of the book... I was listening to an adaptation instead of the book itself. I got back, I got the actual book, and this colored my experience greatly. If you are like me and you prefer hearing a book, you like the process of being read to instead of reading yourself because you're a busy person, you got a lot of walks like I do, um, you should listen to the radio adaptation, not the audiobook. Because the audiobook, I think, is bad. Ooh. That yeah. is quite the opinion there. I think it worsened my experience of the book. It just was not very good. Now, can I speculate on the reason why? Because Co- I do have a, a suspicion. Okay. Because I, I haven't done the audiobooks, but I have seen the TV show adaptation on Amazon. Uh-huh. And there's a similar reason why I actually think that adaptation works so well over just me reading the book. Okay. And that is to do with comedy. That's to do with the tenant of comedy which is comedic timing. Because I felt reading this book, because obviously you control the time in your head when you're reading, mm. I couldn't read it as funny as someone who actually knew comedy could mm. read and deliver it. And is that's my speculation for why you might feel it. Maybe I'm completely wrong, and you're going to give me a, a, a very different reason. I'm completely off the mark, but... That's something that, 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 I is, that is a very reasonable reason, Duncan. And I think on many occasions, that is right. I think the narrator kind of botched some delivery. And there are some jokes which are not are made not just not very funny, but actually offensive. 
So the narrator, and this is where we get even more British than we already are, is Martin Jarvis. Uh, Duncan, are you familiar with Martin Jarvis? Um, actually I'm not. Do, uh, do enlighten okay, me. Okay, he's very, he's a very quintessential British voice actor. You can find his voice in a lot of different old medium. He has an incredibly, um, quintessentially British BBC voice, um, and very distinctive. But he's most famous for reading the Just William books. You know what I'm talking about, Duncan? I'm going to have to be open and honest here and fully candid. I don't have a clue what you're on about. Okay, now this is really interesting, Duncan. This is going to change a lot of our discussion about this book. And, but, so basically, Martin Jarvis is kind of this old school voice actor. And when I was listening to this, I'm like, this is not an old book. There are plenty of talented voice actors out there who are much better than, than, than Martin Jarvis. Martin Jarvis is not doing a good job in this book. A lot of the characters sound the same. His voice for Crowley is actually just bad. Like, he, he's just not got a good grasp of the character. He sounds whiny and petulant. Um, and he's, he's, he's definitely stressed out. But there's no sense at all that this guy is a demon. It just sounds like some guy, some geezer. The place where it makes sense why they chose Martin Jarvis is when the kids show up. When you meet Adam and his friends, Martin Jarvis starts doing his Just William voice. Now, the Just William books were a series of books written back, I don't know, like the 60s or 50s or something. I think my dad would have read them. Um, and, uh, and they're about this, this group of kids you know, hanging out in the summer holidays, getting into trouble. Sort of like the, the precursor to something like Horrid Henry. You know, uh, kids getting into into scrapes. Uh, Dennis the Menace, that sort of thing. I love it as you could progress through um, examples there thinking, okay, what will people actually know? It's exactly what I'm thinking. They did a, um, they did a t- BBC TV adapta- adaptation and they got the... The, the, the kid who played Ben in Outnumbered. This is the most British episode we've done yet. But that should give you a good sense of the character. If they said, okay, let's get Ben from Outnumbered to play it. Oh, that's so perfect. And Martin Jarvis is, is very famous for it. And the reason why is that he, had this, he made this very strong choice when he voiced those characters back in the day. He didn't make them sound like kids. He made them sound like middle-aged uh, middle-class British people. So they talk, oh, yes, like this, basically. They sound a bit like Roger Moore. Um, and it's <laughs> that makes it, those books very funny because suddenly these kids aren't talking about cowboys and aliens and things like that like kids do. They sound like this strange mix of kids wanting to sound like grown-ups while still talking about kids' subjects. And that's quite funny. So when he starts doing that voice, I'm like, oh, you have identified a characteristic of this book which might be passed by, which is that these books aren't just inspired by The Omen. They're also inspired by Just William. They're about these kids playing around in their village town, getting into scrapes, getting into trouble. And it says, what if William of Just William 
had powers beyond all mortal comprehension. Hey everyone, this is uh, Geordie popping in after the recording. I'm just here, there's no Duncan. Because I was doing a bit of research to find out when Just William was actually written, and I found something out which pretty conclusively confirms, yeah, this is exactly a sort of a take on Just William. Because one of the features which Adam has on his town is that he causes it to never really change. Even though it's now the 1990s, the town feels like it hasn't changed from, like, the 1950s. And that is part of the joke of Just William. Just William, like, say, The Simpsons, he's always 11 years old, but the books were written from 1922, before Conan, to 1970. Um, but he was always the same age. He always was contemporary to the time period the book was written in. So Adam causes time, just like in Just William, to always stay kind of the same. Uh, back to the show. That has a level of insight that just completely slipped me by. And because that was... Mm. In, you're talking about the, the Just William in, uh, inspiration for those kids. Now, that's not what mm -hmm. I picked up on when I read this book. Um, I pulled upon what I knew about, and I, I read a sort of... Uh, I thought, oh, well, we're doing The Omen. Maybe these kids are meant to be that sort of Stephen King it group. Um, and that's what I saw them as. Mm. But now that you say that, particularly in the way they've been written, because these kids really do, in the way the dialogue is paced out, it's like mm. you said, it's like they're trying to talk more adult. They're trying to act yeah. in a more mature way but still about that absolutely really... especially one of the kids is 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 very much like being like well i know everything like um and they, they can never admit to being wrong like um when adam's telling them about like um flying saucers and um tibetan monks um he has to be like yes yes i know about all of this and if anyone raises a question like like he says like the ho like the earth is hollow they say what about the lava he says well obviously it's hollow underneath all the lava and he has to maintain this um this idea that he's he's smart and grown up and he knows everything ah uh, and the idea that when he gets grown up he may keep doing that and that would be a problem mm. i <laughs> really enjoyed uh, the kids actually a lot more on this reread than i'd ever actually experienced mm -hmm. before particularly because i i don't i'm not surprised by that that was a th first thing i thought when they said you read this at 12 i was like He's not going to connect with these kids because these aren't kids written by a kid. These are kids looking by an adult, looking back at being a kid. Exactly. When I first read this book, I actually was bored out my mind with the kid characters because they weren't mm. doing anything that I could super relate to. Mostly that they were hanging mm -hmm. out, going outside and having friends. Just completely unbelievable. <laughs> um, but I was, you know, I was drawn into it too. I actually connected more with... Um, Oh, God, one second. One second. Stop, stop, stop. Captain Aim. Aziraphale? No. Newton Pulsifer. Newton Pulsifer. There we go. That's the character. Interesting. Name. That was actually the character that I found more of my um, intro character. I was, I was connecting more to him, which probably says quite a lot about me. Hmm, uh, yeah. I wonder. <laughs> I'm putting my Freudian cap on. <laughs> yeah, Pulsifer is um, <laughs> a character who's all about. Uh, not being anything special, uh, but still saving the world and getting the girl in the end, even though you don't deserve either. Honestly, is that not the power fantasy we all seek? 
of course it's Power Fantasy, literally reading this through. And I, now, here we go. Here we come back to something I, I, I held back on saying earlier. There is no point in this book, up until some point, I'm like, where's Neil Gaiman? Where's Neil Gaiman? Where is he? And then suddenly, there was an inexplicable scene where two characters had sex for no reason. I said, oh, there's Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Oh yeah, of course, yeah. he doesn't write female characters amazingly. I forgot, there he is, I found him. It was the most seen, when I um, read this book, I told you, I've only actually read mm-hmm. one other uh, Neil Gaiman book, that being Stardust, and I, I really enjoy that book. Yeah. I picture uh, Newton Pulsifer, and I think it's Tristan from that book. To me, those characters... Tristram, Tristram in the book, Tristan in the movie. Oh, that's not correct. Mm. Um, I picture these two characters identical. Like, to me, they are the same. They, the starting place for both those characters are literally the same mould. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I connected well then. Now I'm a bit older, getting on in years. I do kind of look at it. I, I see sort of the stereotype a bit more. And I, I feel like, okay, I recognise this as the power fantasy. But I mm-hmm. still look at them and go, oh, if I had to be yeah. anyone in this situation, I'm, I'm going to be him, please. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, I, I will say there's not quite fair to see he's a power fantasy because he he never he never accomplishes anything really. His his big contribution to the end of the book is um he's so bad at computers that when he tries to fix something he breaks it. So by trying to fix a computer that's going to end the world, he breaks it. Okay, it's not a power fantasy. Let's call it something. Let's call it like a reward fantasy. That's basically it, it is exactly it's exactly it's the reward for the mundane guy who is made special by people telling him he's special and particularly it's getting the approval of a beautiful young woman who's better and more intelligent than you yeah this is this is very close to home oh. <laughs> uh, I, I said <laughs> Sorry, earlier Duncan. I'm not gonna do jokes. I didn't mean to bully you <laughs> I'm not going to read out exact jokes but oh God I'm gonna break my own rule Sorry, everyone. Mm-hmm. There is a joke in here where I was just like, oh, I would like, I, like, if I, you know, those memes, it was like a scene from a movie or, you know, it's a character and there's a quote and everyone goes, oh, so relatable. The bit in this mm-hmm. book is when, um, oh, okay, guys, this is name time. This is Duncan name time. He only read the novel, uh, saw the TV show quite a while ago. Anathena <laughs> Device. Okay. Now, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to make fun of you here. Because I used to pronounce this word anathema as well, and I got shamed for it in a D&D game, because it's a monster called the T Anathema. But, this, come on, how are you going to know how to pronounce anathema? Oh, because you watch the TV show, and they pronounce it like that throughout the whole thing, but you forget. Mm. Anathema... No, anathema is, is a hard word, so no, no disrespect about one, Dong. Thank you. You were making up for the bullying earlier. Uh, now let me do some um, <laughs> self-deprivation uh, comedy. She looks down at um, Newton at one point and she just goes, you know, all she ever wanted was tall, dark and handsome. And she's just like, ah, two out of three isn't bad. I was like, I know, that's pretty good. I like that one. I feel it. So then, I think the real strength of this book, if you can, um, if you're not, if you don't enjoy the kids section like Duncan didn't when he was a lad, um, the real meat and potatoes of this book, which I was led to believe and I was a teeny bit let down by, is the the comedy duo of Aziraphale and Crawley. 
Crowley. Oh, even I think both you may be stepping on some toes there because that's interesting. Because I was like, we're coming back maybe halfway point in this, and we haven't talked about them in yep. depth. And many people consider I know, them. I was very surprising. The the heart and the, the heart and soul. They are the linchpin mm-hmm. that makes this novel what it is. And reading the book, especially after coming off the TV show, they were less than perhaps they were in my mind. Yeah, I was really surprised by this because, you know, for one thing, my first introduction to Good Omens really was the trailers for the TV show. Like, um, and the conversation surrounding it. So I knew that, oh, this is a very faithful adaptation. And, oh, David Tennant is so fantastic in it. And I know for a fact that the two actors, oh, the name of the Xerophil's actors. Michael Sheen. Me, Michael Sheen, yes, of course, a very, very talented actor. I know they work really well together because they made this excellent show together during lockdown. So I was really expecting them to be sort of other characters we follow throughout the entire book. And that's how the story begins. And then they sort of go back to their houses and they stay in them for several days. They're, they do. They become quite inactive through large parts of the plot, mm-hmm. especially in the um, time towards the climax. Um, it's Rasmuthel. It's Rasmuthel. It's Elicity. The good angel. <laughs> He's not even physically that present. That's true. That's true. And I realize, because during the TV show, that's like the last episode. I think it's like the so it's one sixth of the show. But I swear in the book, it's about a third. Mm. Like that climax I described, it's about a third to a quarter. Yeah. It's very long. I don't have page counts. But what I do have, which will probably say a lot, is the length of each episode. Like when they break down the chapters, because the chapters are quite long, and Terry Pratchett has never liked doing chapters, um, I can tell you how long each chapter is. There's something I'm going to interject here while Georgie seems as though looking. So I would be l- grabbing for my book right yep. now to uh, do a page count, but uh, I, uh, I I shamefully lost it on holiday. Oh no, sorry Duncan. I know. Okay, so here we go. In the beginning, the prologue to the story, which is the two of them in the Garden of Eden, after the apple's been picked, they have their first theological discussion about destiny and the difference between good and evil, which is the linchpin, the theme for the entire story. Then it's 11 years ago, which is the, ele- which is the birth of uh, the Antichrist and the two of them deciding that they're going to prevent the end of the world. That's just under two hours long. Wednesday, one hour and 40 minutes. Tuesday, 45 minutes. Friday, one hour. Saturday, which is the end of the world, six hours and 13 minutes. Whew. That's Blimey like Nora. more than the rest of the book combined. It is. Blimey hell, it is. Mm-hmm. I didn't even feel like it was that long when I read it. But then again, because often I... That means it's flying by. That's a good sign. It is. It did fly by. Because the thing is, I often I... My, my reading pace increases towards the end of the book. Because you're getting closer. Oh, it's a climax. I've got to keep reading. So I did blow through mm-hmm. that in a sitting. But when you say it like that, you're right. It is like a third to a half to more, apparently, mm-hmm. of the novel is that climax. And... Azrafel does not have a huge presence throughout a lot of it. Yeah. Crowley vanishes from the book for several days and he does he's not up to much. They they, they have this um which I think is actually a kind of lame duck excuse where they say, We as angels and demons won't be able to find the boy. 
So um, we're gonna we're gonna bring in the Witchfinder army, which is a big source of um, the comedy in this book. It's sort of a lot of the same humor which you'd find in the Night Watch books, in that it's about people who have authority um, without any of the competence required to exert that authority. Um, and um, I'm, I don't know, I'm not, that's not my favorite part of the book. It's pretty funny overall, but I feel like this is where you get into um, uh, some of the things which I think are lacking about it. I think that Terry Pratchett is at his best and his funniest when he's poking fun at society. In this, he's poking fun at some quintessential Britishness, but he's not really challenging a lot of big ideas. He's focused on the biggest idea of all, good and evil. So he, a lot of little stuff like misogyny and how to talk about other races is kind of like not his priority. So when, um, who's the witch scientist, witch finder sergeant? Shadwell. Shadwell. So when Shadwell is just like barking misogynistic stuff at his neighbor and is like kind of racist about his, um, kind of races about the shopkeeper down the street. Um, these, we're not obviously supposed to be on his side. We're supposed to be critical of him. But at the end of the day, Shadwell kind of just gets whatever he wants. Like, he, end, he gets a happily ever after, and he never has to examine his behavior. He never has to actually change that much. Um, there's no motivation for him to change. And um, that sort of thing meant that I didn't really enjoy Shadwell scenes as much as I should have, because he should be so funny. And I didn't find him as funny as I thought I should have. The problem I found with Shadwell is that, mm -hmm. as you kind of say, he does, he gets basically rewarded at the end. And that reward yeah. is sort of based around, I always interpret it as sort of his, well, he had his, like, his blind faith. He, he truly believed in his Witchfinder army and their mission. And in that sense, oh, he wasn't all that bad. And... But he never really has to grow, as you said. He never has to take like critical analysis of the things he's done, like his his old attitudes. No. And we look no, through the eyes. There's of... no moment where he has to reconsider himself. Where his his change is never even prompted. He's just chill now. Exactly. Um, like with uh, Madame Tracy, it's made very clear that mm -hmm. like oh the the sex you know it never bothered her. Oh whatever, and like mm -hmm. she's happy and like you know to develop and, and, like, help him be a better person. But yeah. that wasn't his only fault, you know. He was also mm -hmm. a little bit... That wasn't his only fault. You know, he had racist views to the shop worker. He, when he mm -hmm. hires Newton, um, he asked quite a lot of, you know, inappropriate questions. And not only that, he's a witch finder, you know. The mm -hmm. whole idea of, yeah, he's all of equipment and we're going to go out and hunt down these women. It's like... Yeah. I know he. The joke is he's incompetent. He never found anyone. He never did anything. But it always leaves it a little bit hanging there. It's like, um, what would this man have done if he actually got into a position where he found a witch? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's fundamentally kind of it's just a bit unpleasant when you really think about it. And I'm not so you know, uh, Lily Whitehearted that I'm like, oh, I'm so offended by this character. Like I can if obviously I tolerate it. I like this book, and I even like Shadwell in the scenes where he's funny, but um, I just think there is a, a part of this which just comes from, this is, there are certain people who are just going to be like, oh, I like Shadwell 
Because I agree with him. Because because his neighbor is a strumpet and he should verbally abuse her or whatever. Um, and I don't like the idea that people are gonna be like, yes, this, but unironically. And that he gets his just rewards in the end. You know, Pulsifer, for example, as much as he's constantly thinking, like, this man's a bit strange. Um, he makes excuses for him and, like, he says, like, oh, he's harmless, really. Um, and once you, and again, you said, like, well, he might not be harmless. <laughs> he, he might actually not be harmless, but who knows. Um, the way in which that is approached is sort of like, well... This sort of behavior is obviously not acceptable, but there's no point really challenging it. Which is in its own way, the most toxic part of Britishness. Uh, seeing something wrong in the world and being like, well, I can't step up and do anything about this. That would be improper. <laughs> Once again, this book striking very close to home. Um, I'm sure we've yeah, all... we we maybe we we were onto the wrong foot by making a podcast about uh, fancy novels. We really we should be talking about the vestiges of the British Empire. Now then, um, I want to talk a little bit about the redeeming parts of uh, Aziraphale and Crowley as um as perspective characters. And that Is it redeeming as in redeeming to their character or redeeming as a narrative choice? As a narrative choice. Um, they are, they are, they're excellent as characters in of who they are. Um, I think um, he does a lot of very appropriately funny stuff about the idea of um, evil and good creatures living on Earth. Um, it reminds me a lot of the jokes in Save the Good Place, which are, is also a joke about... The good and bad, afterlives, demons, angels, or their analogues. And so a lot of jokes come from the idea of what is heavenly and what is hellish. So there's great jokes about um, how uh, Crowley was in charge of designing Manchester, whereas um, uh, whereas Aziraphale designed Shropshire. And, they, and each of them thinks they are the one who designed Milton Keynes. And there you can see why Duncan's laughing now because he's remembering how it was written in a book. But you've got to see how no. that is not as funny when I'm trying to explain it in a podcast as just reading it as Terry Pratchett intended. And not only that, but I can really find that funny for I have visited Manchester, Shropshire and Milton Keynes. To be fair, I haven't. And I'll tell you now. Okay. The real punchline, firstly, mm -hmm. Manchester was indeed, the layout of that city was designed by a devil. It is a nightmare. It is a terrible place to get around when you've just arrived and you don't want to have to pay for a taxi. I was there for one night and I spent nearly five hours of my time just trying to walk between locations. It was painful. I went to find a statue once. I was in the very park the statue was in and I couldn't find it. <laughs> It drove me mad. How, how is your I sense of direction, Duncan? Is it a good one? I think it's fantastic. Ah. But then again, I've lived my entire life uh, near the sea. So I've always had at least one <laughs> of the north, south, east and west basically covered. It's like, what's west of here? Ocean. Cool. That's so good. Um, I love that. <laughs> you only have had to worry about three cardinal directions. Oh, God. Um, and uh, Milton Keynes is a... Um, it's the idea, I believe... It's the town that's basically been designed. I'm going to say almost like the... Uh, I'm going to say American, having barely ever been to the mm. States, in the sense that it's very much designed in a mm, grid yeah. with a lot of roads. And it's both like, oh, wonderful. Oh, yes, you can just... You can get anywhere. You just drive to any location. But also, 
again, for someone who walks around a lot, it was designed by the mm. devil, and you can't get to anywhere, and everywhere's a little mm. island, and every road is trying to kill yeah, you. Yeah, that's America for you. Um, when I lived in America, if I wanted to go to the movies, and I didn't have a car, because I was living in the States, and I don't know how to drive a car. That's the main one. That's the main that's one, the main one. You, you didn't know how to drive and a also, car. Also, like, I'm not going to learn to drive and get a car just to get around Asheville, North Carolina. But if I wanted to go to the movies, and I love the movie, um, I had to get a bus to the middle of town, walk to the next bus stop, wait there for a potentially as long 45 minutes to an hour for the bus to arrive. And in the UK, they have a little timer on the bus stop telling you when the bus is going to arrive. Not so in America. I get on the second bus. I would go for a tunnel. Tunnel is important. And I'd get dropped up at another bus stop outside the Barnes & Noble. Then I'd walk about half to a full mile um, down the road because there are no more bus stops. Uh, and, and then I'd come to a section, a four-way intersection with no traffic lights. It's a very busy section of road. I would wait for a gap in the traffic and sprint across the road. Then I'd walk up to the movie theater, another, like, third of a mile away. And then I'd have to do it all on the way back. I couldn't walk back, because to get there, I had to go for a tunnel, and that tunnel, likewise, had no pavement. So, if you couldn't get the bus, you just had to wait. So it was a, literally a full day of travel there, waiting, seeing the movie, waiting, getting the bus back. Most of the time, I would get back to my dorm at about midnight. And sometimes, I would get back before the last bus, and I would have to walk the last five miles back to my university campus. I, I am in shock, and I'm appalled. And I'm trying to come up with a joke here, other than clearly, clearly Crawley took over for the entire design of the States. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he, had, he had America. So he had it all cap. taken care of. He said, I've got this great idea. Uh, Aziraphale, it's called the suburb lots of green space, the kids can run around and play, and Aziraphale went, oh yes, that sounds like an absolute charming idea, and Crowley said <laughs> he doesn't realise that everyone's going to get hit by cars, you can't go anywhere without a vehicle, and it's secretly very racist <laughs> anyway uh, and we're not political well I don't think we're going to make any pretensions about that. Literally, the first episode we had, we had to give we had to give a con a content warning about how racist Robert E. Howard is. Something we keep mentioning, and that is the adaptations. Because the thing is, we can just go around ourselves saying, "This is a good book. This is mm -hmm. a good book." The adaptations, because I think a lot of people listening to this are probably familiar with them, especially the TV uh, show. You've mentioned the audio one. I've referenced the TV show a few times. I really want to just take a moment because. In terms of the enjoyment of this book mm -hmm. and how it's changed uh, pre and post TV show, because for those who don't know, the TV show was done after Terry Fatchett mm -hmm. passed, but Neil Gaiman was one of the lead writers. He was very much part of that creative process, mm -hmm. and it is quite renowned for its accuracy. So I need to say this now, and I won't often say this. In fact, I may never say this again. The TV show, the film adaptation of Good Omens, may indeed be better than the original Oof. book okay that bad's interesting because duncan i i think of you as someone who's strongly in the book was better camp i can't recall a time when you've said the filmed adaptation was better i i feel a little sick just standing here um <laughs> but i can't i can't lie to myself and i will not lie to our audiences geordie 
Okay. The film adaptation of Lay Good Omens, it achieves more than the book in a few key ways. Number one, I mentioned comedic timing and what it can do for comedy. Mm. The comedic talent, and this is both from the actors and probably the, you know, especially as the director mm-hmm. of David Tennant and Michael Sheen mm-hmm. in delivering as a film Crawley, I believe elevates those characters from where they are in the book. Mm. They are funnier. They are more heartfelt as well. And their performances to me made the characters more memorable to the point which when I reread the book, mm-hmm. I kind of went, oh, they're not in it as much as I thought. They weren't the center point of the novel. And some people might even say there's a negative. Like they took up too much time in the TV show. Mm-hmm. But they're so good. And the second thing the TV show really expands on is the past between Crawley and Azraphale while they're on Earth. Mm-hmm. In the book, it's a to. Little moments. Uh, yeah. References of, oh, you owe me dinner from when we've got uh, crepes in Paris just well, before the fall of the Bastille. Exactly. So when was that? I believe it was during the Reign of Terror. Ah, yes, that was it. In the TV show, there is a sizable section dedicated to like those flashbacks. Mm-hmm. We see them uh, throughout time, and it just adds so much more to their relationship. Their mm-hmm. arrangement, the arrangement, as mm. it became, of, um, okay... We're just going to kind of work together, you know. There's no point us both doing good and evil and cancelling each other out. You go over there, I'll go over here, we'll flush the reports back home. Mm-hmm. It's brought so much more in the TV show where we actually get to kind of see it form over the millennium. millennium. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Just and I'm very, su- I'm very surprised to hear you say that. But I, I'm really, I, I, I have Amazon Prime. I'm going to watch this show. I, if I had had more time this week, I would have done the hat trick. All three, and I could have given you the most comprehensive version of this podcast. But I, um, I'm a little, um, I was pretty busy this week, so I didn't do that. But, um, my perspective, if I may. You may, as my co-host, I will let you. My perspective, as having listened to the audiobook and the BBC radio adaptation. Pick one. Pick one. Don't listen to both, because... I, I knew I had to read the book for this podcast because that would be a betrayal of our audience. I wouldn't be giving them my authentic perspective if I only listened to the radio adaptation. But I had so much more fun listening to the radio adaptation because the actors do such a good job, especially the actors for, um, for Crowley and, um, and Aziraphale. They, are, um, they, they have a real excellent repartee and the guy who plays Crowley is genuinely so like naturally funny he has this deep lovely beautiful like baritone voice and so you immediately get this really strong sense of Crowley from the first time um he um he he enters the scene and um and they have to do this sort of thing because Terry Pratchett is difficult to adapt very difficult because so much of what makes him great, makes him really unique as an author, is in his prose, not in his dialogue. He does these asides. It's some of his, de- his descriptions of, of the scenes and scenarios and the way in which people react. If you've read Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett, you'll know exactly what I mean. Really mundane sentences are elevated 
by the framing he puts them in. And it's, that's hard to do when a lot of the comedy in your series isn't spoken by the characters. So you have to suddenly start having actors deliver descriptions that were delivered in prose through, uh, through their own mouths. And sometimes that doesn't work. I feel like Anathema Device and Adam get the worst end of this because they need to start saying out loud the things which the narrator was saying. But Crowley nails it every time when he would talk about, like, an excursion in the past. He does this lovely thing like, yeah, I just did this as a little anecdote. Let me tell you about it. Especially, like, his description of creating the M25 um, when he first comes to the scene. It's so natural. And it's so, yeah, of course this guy is just saying this stuff, which could be seen as a little, um, as a little, uh, weird otherwise. Um, it feels so good when he says it. There is one place where he lets that down a bit. And this is not the actor's fault. There is no way to make this work. Because it's the funniest joke in the book. And it doesn't work in an adaptation. Duncan, what do you think the funniest joke in the book is? Oh, it's an unfair question, but I'm still going to ask it. It is an unfair question. I believe the funniest joke in the book. Two minutes of silence later. No, I oh know it. Actually, sorry, it's the Elvis joke. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's one that's adapted interestingly because uh, they they frame it differently. In um, in the book, obviously, Elvis doesn't have a voice. He's just a guy saying his lines and um. And you can't say immediately, oh, that's Elvis, because you can't hear his voice. And then it's revealed later on in the book, oh, that was Elvis. He's, he is still alive and working at a burger joint. Whereas in both the audiobook and the radio adaptation, immediately he's like, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, the guy that got to play Elvis in, um, in, the, uh, in the radio adaptation was uh, the Crowley's actor. And I know that because they end the um, they end the book after it's all wrapped up, after the radio series is all done, they end it with bloopers. That is a new experience for the podcast, a book ending with bloopers. And you get to hear them mocking at the lines and having a laugh, and they place in bite-sized chunks of, um, of Crowley's actor just doing very thick Elvis songs. Just, uh-huh, there ain't nothing but a hound dog and you ain't no friend of mine. <laughs> just that, breaking up everything else, like, a, like, like he's a framing device. But anyway, the funniest joke in the book, Duncan, is of course Crowley's houseplants. I feel that must speak to you then, for that to be the funniest joke. I love this joke. I was laughing so much at this. Uh, about how his way, he that Crowley has found out that a lot of people talk to plants to help them grow. And he thought that was a great idea. But his extension on that is threatening the plants. So if, um, if he sees a plant is starting to wilt, he picks it up and he sh- walks around the room showing all the other plants saying, Oh no, we got a weak one here. Uh, something bad is going to happen to him. And he says like, just goes as you know, and then he'd take it out, and he would come back later with an with an empty rubbish bag. Let there be an example to the rest of you, he says, and then all his plants grow very nicely. I think that's really funny. Uh, I absolutely love it. Plus, it leads to a great bit about his plants, 
you know, sprayer, using it to threaten someone with holy water and turning it into a dirty Harry joke about whether someone feels lucky. That scene doesn't work in a radio play. And it's very unfortunate that the joke can't come across because it just feels like a guy is suddenly talking to his plants with no explanation and no context. And you're like, this is weird. Why is he talking to his plants? It doesn't um, have enough context to be funny. That's just the strength then to the Amazon TV adaption. Mm-hmm. Not only do you get the visuals, but they do make one other decision, which in most other adaptions, I'd be like, you don't do that. That's, that's just a, a rule of cinema. You don't do that. But they have a narrating voice. Interesting. And they give it the narrator's dialogue. And it is the voice of God. The voice of God. So that is a... That's oh, how oh, they so describe... the Metatron. No, 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 sorry. It's literally done... Metatron's a separate character. It's literally... The narrator is, is meant to be... It's God. It's God telling the story. Interesting. And that's how they get in all of that... Uh, pro- all the good prose, all the narrator's uh, language from the book into the show. Mm. Is that in that scene... You will then have the narrator talking over the scene of Crawley with his plants, going, Crawley had a very special method with dealing with his mm. plants. And then Crawley would go, You see this? You see what happens? <laughs> and that. That's, you, how, it's and right. That's, 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 you have to do it. You have to have that narrator because the voice of Terry Pratchett is what makes his books funny. And that's, I think, why we keep saying, uh, He, Terry Pratchett. Because mm-hmm. when you read a Terry Pratchett book, the narrator is a character and mm. that is him he is there telling you the story and i feel it more than any other author is the sense that i'm not just reading the character and you could see this as a weakness depending on what type of story you're wanting to tell it's not the character telling me a story i'm not in this world by partially seeing the events play out it's terry pratchett sir terry pratchett is telling me this story yep. when i read this book mm-hmm. and that is why it's so critical to have that narrator because it is a character and that character is terry Mm-hmm. Or in the TV show, it's God. Very similar to, you know, easy to confuse too. <laughs> and that's why it works. Well, they are hanging out. Okay, now I got emotional. <laughs> Anyhow, the point of the entire story is something which Terry Pratchett is often um, keen on visiting in his books. And that is the idea of, uh, of moral grayness. Um, Terry Pratchett does, do not, does not like to subscribe to um, rigid ideas of of good and bad i believe there is a line in small gods and i've never read small gods which is that the difference between demons and gods is sort of like the difference between terrorists and freedom fighters and that is the ethos that goes into this book there is no mutable good and bad um they are in terms of what they do to the world and the impact they have they are more or less the same cosmologically the difference between Milton Keynes and Manchester is not as different as we would have ourselves believe. So I'm just I'm just making a note that you haven't read Small Gods. Mm. Okay, cool. I've heard, I'll come up everyone, later. Everyone says it's the best one. So um, that's because they're right. <laughs> uh, except it's actually Feet of Clay. That that's a secret. Never I read that myself. one either. Okay. My favorite is uh, Nightwatch. Clay. And now we might have another argument. So, <laughs> moving back to Good Omens. That would is good, right. what the fuck? You're right, that is the message. And I would expand it and say that it's not only that they're... The transmutable, good and evil. It's that the character... It's to be human is to be 
this complex part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes us different to the angels and the demons is that we c- we're we not doing necessarily you know, the good, the evil. Mm-hmm. We're just kind of being human. Mm-hmm. And it's almost unfair to apply those kind of rules to us. And that's when we get to the, the very end mm-hmm. uh, of the book. And in and which it's... Crowley and Aziraphale justify their presence in the book and redeem my criticism of the book that um, these two aren't important. They are, and it comes through at the end. And I was very, sat- very, very satisfied by this. I hope we're making the same point now. It's when they're sitting at the very end of this book, um, dining at the Ritz. Mm. It's a lovely scene. Nightingale sings. And they kind of make the point, they're musing on what's the future's going to hold. Mm-hmm. And they kind of say, like, the end times isn't about heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. It's about humanity fighting off all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the final battle. It's about when humanity will finally step up and throw off. And I see it, it's not just fighting heaven and hell, mm-hmm. like the powers that create them. It's about them fighting the concepts of good and evil. Yeah. And this is how, um, even though he's writing a book about um, about angels and demons and tons of the jokes in the book come from jokes about the Bible and about uh, biblical literalism and relies on some knowledge of the Bible indeed. Terry Pratchett is, like, one of the most atheist authors ever. Like, he has a lot of interesting discussions in his own books about uh, faith, and he has a lot of respect for religion in his books, especially something like Nation. Um, but fundamentally, his ethos is about that, that people decide what is good and what is right. There is no divine proclamation. And, um, and it, it doesn't surprise me about in this book that really shines through and is presented in its best light. It's a kind of a beautiful moment. And I think you kind of nick on the corner of something else there. He does have respect for religion. It's not about mocking, uh, particularly faith. Mm. Um, I really enjoy the film Dogma. Uh, doesn't do it quite as subtly, but it's a similar idea. You know, there's, you know, having faith and having that belief is not looked down on. Mm-hmm. It's not swept aside. It's not derogatory towards it. Mm-hmm. But... It does kind of say, you know, you are your own person. You have your own autonomy. You can't just describe your actions to this higher powers that be and say it's out of your control. You know, you're human and you can decide your own fate. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful and it's sweet. Yeah. Absolutely. But they also leave it open a little bit. And they do still leave it there when they say the ineffable plan. And it's kind of, and I like that. That's just that little bit at the end where they're like, obviously, God has the ineffable grand plan. And this is probably all going accordance to it we don't know but maybe we are still just you know uh that's the fantastic part of the book like ah and Aziraphale claims his rightful place as one of the main characters and um and watching the two of them come into union like that um I want to lead this in now we're talking about Aziraphale and Crowley and the, the mutability of evil and good uh, a big aspect of that is presented in the the hidden goodness of Crowley and the just a little bit of badness that exists in Aziraphale. And um, that is the, the core, that's the way in which the core tenets of the book is presented. And this leads me on to uh, a question I have for you, Duncan. Um, what do you feel that's about cool. queer readings of good omens you know what i'm talking about oh between crawling and Mm-hmm. yeah 100 percent, definitely there 
I, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that when I was 12 years old, it mm-hmm. was my, uh, what I read at that age. Mm-hmm. I, it's not, obvi- it's not inherently in the, t- uh, obviously within the text as outlined by the author, mm-hmm. but there's more than enough material there to conduct queer reading. And Absolutely. I would even say in many respects, um, when I reread it this time, I was aware of, um, I, my mind has been expanding since when I was 12. Sure. Uh, we'll put it that way. As one and would hope. One would hope, wouldn't you? Ah, <laughs> oh, some people. But I think it actually enhanced my enjoyment for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly, what I would say, when I uh, watched the recent TV adaption, that was the adaption that made me go, was this obvious in the book? And I don't think it was as obvious in the book as it was in that TV show adaption. I think... But I still really enjoyed it. It really heightened their relationship when I applied that reading. Absolutely. Um, there is a... Um... I think it is, the reason why it is not obvious in the book is that I think at a certain point Terry Pratchett kind of knew that uh, people were going to assume that these two uh, loved each other uh, and were going to place them in the role of a um, of a romance. They were going to read it that way. And I f- I'm going to lay this at the feet of it being in the 1990s. Uh, but I feel like... on the dot, I believe. So I think he drew back away from text. That. Yeah, it feels old in a lot of ways, in the way they talk about computers sometimes. Um, it, it It's the first of Terry Pratchett's books. I'm like, whoa, when did he write this? This year's so old. Um, but and you realise Terry Pratchett's been writing great books and since he was like 19, and you're like, oh, I've not done this much with my life. <laughs> but um, man, he was so prolific. Was he write 40 Discworld novels? 41, good 41. Sir. God, what a badass. Anyway, I think he was aware that people were going to have this reading, and I feel like he sort of took steps to try and encourage people not to do that. There's a bit in the book when people say, he says, people made three assumptions about uh, Aziraphale, that he was British, that he was very intelligent, and that he was gayer than a something or other. Bag a of tree full of monkeys, A tree full of monkeys on noxious oxygen. And he, and he says, uh, one of these things was correct. So meaning, and then, and then it explicitly states that he is intelligent. As if to not even leave it up to inference, to say, no, 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 Aziraphale is not gay. He's not gay. Um, so, uh, so don't you um, have that reading. Um, my only take back on that, though, yeah. is a tree full of monkeys on nitrous oxygen. They're jolly. <laughs> it's in a happy man okay all right well done duncan stepping up to the plate um i, I I'll, I'll acknowledge that as a potential joke reading of that scene um however i think it is pretty obvious that you know not authorial intent not authorial intent he was trying to put his thumb on the scale in terms of how you read it uh, now myself i'm a big believer in death of the author like um we should always read books um, generously, and we should um, we shouldn't try and in, in, interpret scenes which do not exist. Uh, which I feel many queer readings of books are compelled to do because so few books actually, you know, um, actually are generous to LGBT readers, and they don't. It's why so many TV shows um, in fandom spaces. The male and female love interest duo is ignored, and they focus on the um, 
on the main character and his best friend, or more likely, his worst enemy. What could be a better example of that than Good Omens, where his best friend and his worst enemy are the same person? Because I'm a believer in death, the author, I am gonna just ignore that one line. Because even though we should take the text as they appear, and that is an explicit part of the text, um, I can see the machinations behind the scenes, and I reject them. And I know that I, Terry Pratchett would not be mad at me for doing so. Because Terry Pratchett, in his later years, was much better at accepting that people were going to have different readings of his texts. Very famously, and this has been brought up in recent years, people have gone on to say that Terry Pratchett would not want uh, trans people reading themselves into his books. He would be very offended by that. And his own daughter had to step up to say, actually, my dad loved that trans people saw themselves in his depiction of dwarves. He changed the way he wrote dwarves over time. He had a new idea when it came to writing the fifth elephant than he did when he was writing, say, Guards, Guards. He had new ideas. And they are literally contradictory. They can't exist in the same book, series, but they do. Because Terry Pratchett grew up. He expanded his worldview. And for that reason, I am strongly a proponent of the idea that Crowley and Aziraphale, deep down, are in love with one another, and that is an appropriate reading of a book to take. To kind of draw and take back to the same words, you know, books don't exist just on the page. That's why we can have conversations about mm -hmm. them on this yep. podcast. You know, it, they exist through the lens in which you read them. And if you read them in a lens that increases the enjoyment for mm -hmm. you, then that's equally as valid as anyone else's lens when they experience exactly. the book. You can extend the same thing to our very first episode when we talk about Conan. And we spoke about how, whilst we enjoy these books, if the, the old, the, the chauvinistic ideas of them uh, are a big turnoff to you, completely legitimate reason to not enjoy those books. I personally can compartmentalize them, look past them, but that is dictated by my own lived experiences, and I can't invalidate anyone else's inability to appreciate them or to enjoy them. So, Jordi, yep. do we recommend Good Omens, the book? I definitely recommend Good Omens, the book. Um, I would say, I'm going to make a statement, I don't think the audio format is the best place for it. Uh, if Duncan recommends the TV show over the book, then... Um, I'll leave it up to him, but I would recommend the physical book. Sure, I haven't read it, but uh, I know it is a better format for this story than either hearing Martin Jarvis stumble his way through it, doing some decent acting bits occasionally, doing a very racist Japanese accent at another, making female characters sound like not female characters. Very strange depiction of the character of war. So, what was he thinking? Anyway, um... And the BBC radio adaptation is very funny, but at the end of the day, uh, you're not getting the full experience. Well, I'm struggling to say what I'm about to say. I want to say that if you are interested in reading works of either of these authors, then this is an excellent book mm -hmm. to start with. Uh, this is actually, if you're a bit put off by the absurdism by uh, some of Terry Pratchett's other Discworld, particularly works, then Good Omens is an excellent gateway to his writing mm. style. 
That said, I do truly believe that this story, the story of Good Omens, was told mm. better, as a very general term, um, through the Amazon TV adaption starring David Tennant and mm. Michael Sheen. I think it was able, with 30 plus years of societal Good development, insight. to explore certain things more mm. extensively. And the works of sort of comedic work, uh, comedic writings, I appreciated more when good actors were delivering the lines than when I was just reading them in the silence of my own mm. armchair in a little Cornish cottage. It made me laugh mm. more, and I think that counts for a lot when it comes to a you know a comedic story. That's 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 so true. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hop straight onto um onto my TV after this, and I'm gonna start watching it. Do you think, Duncan, what's the best place to start? Should someone watch the TV show first or read the book first? That's obviously going to come down to the person in question, Geordie. But I would say that if you're someone who maybe doesn't read a lot, or you feel like, oh, I could pick up Good Omens, but oh, I might not get through it, you know, I might have to read in bits and bobs, it might take me a mm. month or two, then maybe you should give the TV show a go. I don't feel like you're missing mm. out. And if you want to go back to the book, I've gone back to the book twice. I still enjoyed my most mm. recent read. That's a perfectly valid way to do it. If you're someone like me who knows they're going to knock through this in a weekend, then yeah, go maybe read the book first. But you're not depreciating mm. either by experiencing one first because they're that good. And that's the wonder, I think, of the comedy is that knowing the ending of this story, as we basically alluded to, not directly, but we've basically told you in this podcast, doesn't diminish the enjoyment of going It's so strange it. that there has only been one adaptation to the screen of a Terry Pratchett work ever. That's so strange. It's funny they did that. I mean, you know, all the Discworld, yet they just decided mm, not to. It's weird. Oh, well. That being said, I haven't seen the whole the adaptation, nor have I read the book, so I can't make any commentary on that. I have seen all the adaptations. Good Omens, the only one they ever did. Ha well, ha. <laughs> Duncan has, has changed the course of my life, because now I know a bunch of stuff I don't have to watch. Speaking of stuff I have to consume, Duncan, this was my choice for book. You, um, it's your turn now. I'm not sure where this is going to take me. Like, um, there was a, it was a clean jump from Elric to this because the color of magic is a very much an Elric story deep down. Um, but where are we going from here? I might be thinking of a light fantastic. I have a manic grin on my face. Because you're like, Good Omens is good. It's such good literature. Don't you appreciate that, Geordie? Literature. Oh, no. I don't like this. Oh, literature. Well, I said at the start, people, I read six books while I was away on holiday. And I indulged in one of my uh, more pulpy favourites. I consider this to be the successor in the literary canon to the fantastic pulp stories of the 1930s and 1920s. Something which I feel brings an enjoyment beyond all, even if its quality is inconsistent. But I love it. Duncan, you're not going to make me read Bloodlines, are you? No, you're not going to make me read The Rise of Skywalker, are you? I'm going to make you read a Star Wars novelisation. But don't you worry, I picked the best. You're going to read Revenge of the Sith by Matthew Stover. Now, you've talked to me about this one before, and you say it's pretty good, and my buddy Jack, who I had a phone call with recently, he told me it was a big elevation of it. So, actually, I'm kind of intrigued by this one. 
That being said, go fuck yourself, Duncan. How dare you make me read a Star Wars story? Jordy, you will thank me. Duncan, so much how am I gonna because... tell people about this? When my dad asked me, so son, what book are you reading for your podcast? What am I gonna tell him? I, uh, I'm supposed to look my, my father that. in the eye and say, I'm reading the novelization of Revenge of a Sith, Dad. I told my girlfriend that I was going to pick this book. And the first words out of her mouth was, Oh, I thought your podcast was about looking at literature. <laughs> Jordi, I am doing you a favour. You will thank me afterwards. Trust me. Well, Revenge of a Sith is the least bad of the prequel trilogy. Oh, Who wrote this wait, book, Duncan? Matthew Stover, he is a wonderful author. He's written his own original work and several Star Wars tie-in works. Um, to be honest, his other work I might want to get to one day. Trust me, you, you read this, you experience his prose, and you come back and tell me that you don't want to read something else by him. I dare you to. Well, well, I might take that bet, but if I do, I'll take it next time on our next episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I've been your ineffably good host, Duncan Nickel. And remember, this podcast isn't just between us. This is a fantasy book club. So it is. And you so can reach is. out to us at isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com. Send mm. us an email. We will be reading through them. We are really interested in getting some feedback from you guys. Whether there's books you want us to read, whether there's fantasy topics that you want us to cover. Who would win in a fight? Uh, <laughs> Elric or Aziraphale? It doesn't have to be about the book we're listening next week. It can be about any book that we've either done or yet to do in the future. Exactly. Uh, if it's an interesting opinion, we will happily read it out and discuss it on this podcast. If it is not an interesting touch. opinion, we will shame you. We will spit in your face and tell you what a fool you are. We're nice in that. Don't worry. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, guys. <laughs>